Greetings. Welcome to St. Dominic's Weekly. This is Father Michael. A special treat for you today. We had in this past week Father Paul Murray, who is an Irish Dominican author, poet, a professor, teacher, and uh, international uh, speaker, come and give a talk here at St. Dominic's. It's one of a number of talks he has been giving in the area. He had actually gone to Salesforce the day before and talked about how poetry has a place in culture, even beyond technology. And I went up to Napa talking about um, truth and beauty and goodness, this initiative that the Archbishop Corleone is very much uh, proposing and through the Benedict uh, Institute that he has formed. He also was on the West Coast uh, because he was uh, taping a number of shows for Bishop Robert Barron and his Word on Fire ministry as well. So we were so delighted to have him come, connect, of course, with our priory here in the Dominicans, uh, spend a wonderful evening of of recreation and uh, dinner, but then have him talk to the parish at large. And I know there were a lot of folks who wanted to be here, but because of either the lateness of the hour or the scheduling, weren't able to. So I wanted to post this as quickly as possible and thought the podcast would be a good uh, way to do that. The lecture itself is entitled, How the Irish Invented Poetry. And in fact, I had remarked uh, somewhat uh, teasingly that I wondered if we were going to discover that uh, Father Paul was going to argue that Homer was actually Irish, uh, but <laughs> but he, he didn't. And in fact, he does he does address it, though, or brings it up. Um, but in fact, his point is to connect how the Irish monks invented a kind of, of poetry, which we normally associate with St. Francis and his A Canticle of Creatures, uh, talking about how all of creation uh, speaks to to the Creator, and in fact, we have a kind of connection to creatures. We're, we're familiar with St. Francis talking about uh, uh, Sister uh, Moon and um, Brother Sun, and yet Father Paul traces back to an even earlier time when the Irish had that same sense, especially the Irish monks, of poetry along that kind of uh, line of, of really beauty and appreciation uh, for creation. And the wonderful thing about the talk itself is not only does Father Paul do a little analysis of the Canticle of Creatures and other uh, Irish poems, but he actually uh, gives us the poetry, actually recites the poetry in a very engaging way. So the evening was certainly delightful for all those who were there, and I hope to share that with you uh, today as well. The uh, lecture itself lasts about an hour, and then there's about uh, 20-25 minutes of question and answer, which itself is wide-ranging. He talks a little bit about his own uh, vocation, the Dominican vocation, his family, a very special rosary that he had been given uh, by his uh, parents. Talks a little bit about his own process of, of writing poetry, and the sense of um, uh, both creativity and discipline one needs in that endeavor, and then how we might approach a poetry, especially uh, not specifically Christian poetry, and how we might think about how beauty itself can compel us in many diverse ways. So I hope you enjoy uh, this uh, talk today, and whether you're on the go or taking it slow, many, many blessings as you enjoy today's show. Good evening, and uh, thank you, Father Michael, for the welcome and for opening up your beautiful church for our event uh, this evening. Gracious of you. I'm uh, very happy to welcome Father Paul Murray as uh, part of our uh, Truth, Beauty, and Goodness uh, project, which we're launching uh, this week with a a vision to try to um, use, tap into the power of beauty, especially 
to heal our society and to unite uh, our society. Uh, the I was reflecting yesterday, trying to remember how did I ever come up with this idea, and I recalled it was very appropriately we're here in this quintessentially, absolutely gorgeous Gothic church, and it was what happened last March with the mother of all Gothic churches, with the burning of uh, Notre Dame de Paris. And I was struck at how it united the whole world. Everyone mourned the burning of that iconic church, from the most devout Catholics to those of no faith, especially the French people. The French people recognized Notre Dame as their mother, but the whole world was French at that time. So I noticed the power of, of beauty to uh, unite and bring out the best of us. Truth, beauty, and goodness, of course, have been around a long time, even before pre-Christian era with the Greek philosophers. But of course, for us, from our Judeo-Christian religious tradition, uh, understanding that uh, the human person is made in the image and likeness of God, we see this then as the noblest parts of our nature. It re tells us something about God and these attributes of God and our, our uh, connection with the divine. These are sort of doorways into the encounter with the divine. The church certainly has been very prominent consistently in the area of goodness and doing carrying out works of charity, the works of mercy, caring for the poor, the sick, the marginalized from the very beginnings of the church up to the present time. The church continues to be through Catholic Charities, St. Vincent de Paul, uh, so many other uh, initiatives of parishes and other church communities and religious orders, still the private, largest private provider of social services in the world, and including here in the Bay Area. Uh, truth, I think we have, especially more recently, some wonderful catechetical resources now available. Uh, fortunately, we see a, a renaissance of that. Of course, truth, I think, is something that would resonate well with Dominicans. <laughs> I've been bothered for some time how it seems as if the church, though, has retreated from the beauty pillar of this threefold um, project. The church has always been the great uh, champion of the arts, patron of the arts, and we seem to have kind of gotten away from that. Now, St. Dominic's is quite an exception, not only visually, but also with sound, <laughs> with your wonderful music program. But unfortunately, that's more of an exception than a rule. So we're trying to um, bring the church back to its role as uh, in being a central part of our society in, in tapping into the power of beauty uh, to, to transform lives. It also has that experience of the burning of Notre Dame made me realize that it comes from a religious vision, our very, uh, Christian vision, but it has the power to reach even beyond those who are devout believers, or even nominally Catholic. And I think the sort of projects we envision taking on and have been taking on have, have that power. So for example, the, the, uh, through the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Divine Worship, we have been uh, promoting the, the pillar of, of beauty. We formed a teaching choir to help parish choirs sing chant. Uh, when I mentioned that to the chaplain at San Quentin State Prison, as I was walking to the entrance of the prison to uh, celebrate Mass for the men there, he asked them, the choir to come and teach the men how to sing chant. And so that was the first time they actually did that. And uh, they formed a Gregorian chant scola of 30, uh, 30 of the men signed up for the Gregorian chant scola.
we also have begun through a choir director I know uh, who's from San Diego but has been helping us here too, but starting in San Diego in teaching uh, uh, women who have been victims of sex trafficking to sing chant. So they're singing these beautiful, ancient chants to the Blessed Virgin Mary to help them in their healing process. We are also trying to renew the great tradition of the church of commissioning new masses of sacred music, which had, the church had been doing for centuries, even in times of strife and scandal. That, that's certainly, we're no strangers to that today. But the church continued to produce great beauty. You may be aware of the, the mass we celebrated last uh, year on December 8th, the Mass of the Americas, which incorporated, it was sacred music, sacred polyphony, but incorporated the sounds and melodies of the popular songs that the Mexican people sing for their common mother, Our Lady of Guadalupe, but in a sacralized sort of a way. Uh, we're very blessed to have Frank LaRocca as our uh, composer in residence. He lives in Oakland, quite accomplished composer of sacred music, and he's now working on a, a requiem for the homeless. The Archdiocese started last year. We're doing, we'll be doing this every year, a memorial mass for those who have died homeless. So uh, somehow he has this amazing ability to take my crazy ideas and make them real to capture something of the sense of of the hecticness and, and fear and insecurity of life on the streets through sacred music. So we see this to have a power to move beyond. We also, there are a number of other initiatives we take, we've taken, one of which is a lecture series. That's why I'm so happy to be able to welcome uh, Father uh, Paul Murray here with us today. He's been very generous with his time uh, with us this week. Uh, Father Murray uh, is, uh, was born in County Down in Northern Ireland and he would join the Irish Dominican province in 1963, was ordained a priest in 1973. Since 1994, he's been teaching at the Dominican University in Rome, the Angelicum, uh, teaching the Western mystical tradition. He's a world-renowned uh, poet, uh, writer, as well as professor, and highly sought-after speaker. He's spoken in London and back in 2008 with the Dalai Lama. Two years later, he was uh, he was in London uh, speaking to the House of Lords at their request about uh, Christian contemplation. He's been more recently, just last week, with uh, Bishop Barron in Santa Barbara, uh, recording his, his talks and presentations through Bishop Barron's uh, Word on Fire series. So, Father Paul, thank you again so much for your generosity and your graciousness to be with us tonight. Good evening, everyone. It's a wonderful joy and a great honor for me to be here. I'm very grateful, first of all, to the Archbishop Cordiglione uh, for his words and his witness in, in beginning this marvelous um, project, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. Um, before, I, normally, and when I'm teaching in Rome, I say uh, a prayer to, the, to our Blessed Mother uh, and St. Dominic, so perhaps we could begin, if I may. Um, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of death. Amen. 
Mary's seat of wisdom, St. Dominic. Beauty, I am stunned by the beauty of this church, which I hadn't seen before. It's a miracle of beauty. So, the title, How the Irish Invented Poetry, Early Irish Nature Poetry, and the Canticle of Francis of Assisi. Now, those of you who have turned up hoping to hear clear evidence that the poet Homer was really an Irishman, <laughs> will, I'm afraid, be disappointed. <laughs> Needless to say, of course, I am hoping you will be happy to be introduced this evening, this afternoon, to some of the earliest poems written in Ireland, poems which, by any standards, uh, I find remarkable. With regard to the subject of the talk, I was given great freedom of choice, uh, and that's great, but it presents its own challenge. What topic to choose among the many possible topics? Which reminds me once of a visit uh, I, with my friends in Ireland. We were visiting, and we visited this small village, and we were very hungry. It was lunchtime, and uh, there seemed to be only two restaurants visible. So I went over to a local man, and I said, excuse me, could you recommend one of these two restaurants? And he stopped and he scratched his head. And then he said, well, put it this way. If you choose one, you'll be sorry you didn't choose the other. <laughs> so I hope we can do a little better this evening. How the Irish invented poetry, early Irish no nature poetry, and the Canticle of Francis of Assisi. Before actually we address the topic directly, I think it would be helpful, first of all, to ask ourselves a few very basic questions. What is poetry for? How best explain its magic, its meaning? How necessary for our lives is the witness of poets and artists, whether major or minor? Does their work, their vision, have an impact that is unique in the way we understand the world around us? and our place in the world. According to Ottavio Path, the relationship between poetry and humanity is as old as our history. It began when human beings began to be human. The first hunters and gatherers looked at themselves in astonishment one day for an interminable instant in the still waters of a poem. Since that moment, people, he says, have not ceased looking at themselves in this mirror. But the nature of that looking, the strange magic of that enthrallment, is there a way to describe it? Is there a way to explain the impact of great literature? What Ottavio Path has called the mirror contains, I think we can say, not only poems in the strict sense of the word, but also verses and songs, images and stories, prose poems and plays, from the many different places and occasions in recorded history where authentic vision has found a voice. But should it happen for one reason or another that the gaze of the average individual in society today, in the age of advanced technology, be deflected away from that mirror? Should we begin to live deprived of the artist's freshness of vision and never allow ourselves to be affected by the power of a painting or a poem or ever permit ourselves to be stirred by the impact of music or drama, in time, our own innate sense of things 
will start to atrophy. We will begin living, in effect, at one or two removes from reality. Religion needs the arts. It needs the vision offered by painters, sculptors, poets, and musicians. But the arts themselves, do they not in their turn draw inspiration from religion? The creativity we associate, for example, with the making of great poetry, does it not require at least some form of orientation towards the transcendent? The Irish poet Seamus Heaney was persuaded that, quote, somehow there is an appeal to the god or the gods at the basis of the poetic imagination. And the great Jewish essayist George Steiner strikes a similar note in his book Real Presences. A notion of God, he writes, still clings to our culture and to our routines of discourse. However, this God, surviving in our everyday vocabulary, is dismissed, Steiner notes, by thinkers since Nietzsche, dismissed as a mere phantom of grammar, a fossil embedded in the childhood of rational speech. But Steiner, though himself, not himself, a religious thinker, makes bold to suggest that creativity in literature and the arts infers the necessary possibility of this presence, this real presence of God. Steiner writes, What I affirm is the intuition that where God's presence is no longer a tenable supposition, and where his absence is no longer a felt, indeed overwhelming, weight, certain dimensions of thought and creativity are no longer attainable. In support of this conviction, Steiner cites a passage from D. H. Lawrence. He writes, I always feel as if I stood naked for the fire of Almighty God to go through me, and it's rather an awful feeling. One has to be so terribly religious to be an artist. These are strong statements and eloquent, but one wonders how many of the present generation in the West and elsewhere in the world are likely to find them meaningful. Perhaps only a small minority of readers today permit themselves to be inspired by the visions and intuitions of poets. We are living in an age of astonishing technological progress, and for that reason, no doubt, people are inclined to turn, first and last, to the world of science for an understanding of the world around them and within them. In a celebrated passage, Walt Whitman announces the arrival in the modern world of, quote, the scientist, the chemist, the geologist, etc. An arrival saluted by the poet, for they are, given the nature of their work and mission, among the bright, necessary practitioners of, of modern technology. Nevertheless, Whitman, with quite astonishing deliberation, reserves his last salute for a voice and vision of a very different kind, declaring, finally shall come the poet. He writes, after the noble inventors, after the scientist, the chemist, the geologist, ethnologist, finally shall come the poet, worthy of that name. The true son of God shall come singing his songs. The emphasis on finally suggests at once that poets bring to our world something which even the genius of science cannot bring, something of unique importance. That something, far from being a dreamy remoteness, a kind of escapist reverie, is fresh as snow, cold as water, hard as stone. A single line from a great poem can bring us to our senses 
and can awaken our minds like almost nothing else. But poetry, when it's genuine, will always resist definition. It is knowledge, certainly, but not knowledge obtained and tested by scientific method. Poetry enjoys an audacious freedom in the pursuit of truth. It is as much a disciple of fiction as of fact. Its meaning, its music, able on occasion to be as simple as a song of sixpence or as deep and moving as a Bach sonata. The beauty of art, the beauty of poetry, possesses an authority all its own. Great works of art and literature not only charm us, they also disarm us. Their beauty, their vision, able by sheer force of integrity to challenge some of our old ways of looking at things. Uniquely, they compel the attention not only of our imagination, but also of our passions and our reason. The fact that beauty in its many different forms has enormous power goes without saying. But conscious of the phenomenon of evil in our world and of the sad fact of human helplessness in the face of the horrors of evil, the horrors of history, what was it that prompted Dostoevsky, or rather Prince Mishkin, the central character in The Idiot by Dostoevsky, to declare in the teeth, it seems, of all the evidence, beauty will save the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, happening to come upon this statement in the days of his self-confident, materialistic youth, dismissed it out of hand. When, he said, in bloodthirsty history, did beauty ever save anyone from anything? Years later, however, reflecting on the essence of beauty, its convincingness, and the way, he said, works of art have scooped up the truth and presented it to us as a living force, he began to suspect that the trinity of truth, goodness, and beauty was not, after all, an empty, faded formula, as he had once believed, and that at a time such as ours, when in some measure, as he wrote, when in some measure the stems of truth and goodness are crushed, cut down, not allowed through, then perhaps the fantastic, unpredictable, unexpected stems of beauty will push through and soar to that very same place, and in so doing will fulfill the work of all three. A statement on the same theme, no less memorable, no less passionate, can be found in the poetry of the Catholic uh, Polish poet Czesław Miłosz. He writes, When people cease to believe that there is, um, cease to believe that there is good and evil, only beauty will call to them and save them so that they still know how to say this is true and this is false. So after that introduction, allow me to return then to the main subject of our talk, uh, Early Irish Nature Poetry and the Canticle of Francis of Assisi. A radiant clarity and a wonderful freshness of perception are the two most immediately striking characteristics of the verse and vision of the monk poets of Ireland in the early Middle Ages. The world in which they were living day to day was, they believed, a world that had been redeemed and restored by Christ. Accordingly, their monastic vocation, whether lived out in community or in solitude, represented not merely an aspiration, an ideal, but a strong and lively conviction of being able to rediscover and re-experience something of the freshness 
and vigor of the first creation. The world they saw all around them, the rivers and the woods, the plants and the birds, the mountains and the lakes, were to them nothing less than a beginning glimpse of the lost garden of Eden. Like the first Christian monks and hermits before them, the Desert Fathers, these bold pioneers and adventurers of the Spirit, while living lives of great solitude out in the wild, found themselves able to experience the joy of a new sense of harmony with all living creatures, a new fellowship with animals, wild and tame, and to experience also the sheer unimaginable joy of recapturing in the present moment a taste of the innocence and intimacy with God which Adam knew in paradise. This faith understanding, this bright perspective on the world of nature, goes some way to explain the unique quality of the lyrics composed by these early medieval monks of Ireland. Commenting on that quality and that achievement, Seamus Heaney says of this startling poetry that, quote, it makes a spring water music out of certain feelings in a way unmatched in any other European language. Of course, he's writing as an Irishman. He's a little, bi he's a little biased, like myself. And Heaney notes further, we are nearer the first world in that first poetry, nearer to the innocent eye and tongue of Adam as he named the creatures. Two things are especially worthy of note uh, in the work of those poets in the Christian tradition who speak or sing of the new creation. First, the manifest affection they have for the bright and fine details of creation. And second, the fact that the bond existing between them and nature is one of fraternal intimacy and joy. St. Francis of Assisi, more than any other individual in the Christian tradition, is celebrated, as you know, for his enormous reverence and regard for creatures and for the ways in which even the fiercest of animals, according to reports, became docile and tame when he approached them. Similar legends and stories, works of hagiography, have survived in Ireland um, regarding the lives of the early monks and hermits. To take one example from among many, we read in the Vitae Sanctorum Hiberniae of the great concern shown by the 5th century Saint Chiron of Sagir, concern for the protection and well-being of wild beasts, how he intervenes to save a hunted animal from its pursuers, how he renders face animals tame, and how he feeds starving wolves out of the herds which he tends. On one occasion, according to the legend, while he was living out in the wild, surrounded by a waste and tangled wood, Chiron encountered a savage boar. This ferocious creature, instead of attacking and harming the saint, was somehow miraculously tamed and became Chiron's first disciple, serving him, we read, like a monk in that place. What follows then, the delightful but truly bizarre account of a monastery consisting not of monks but of wild animals, is one of the most charming tales ever to come out of Ireland. Here it is. Here's the ancient text. <clears throat> Eventually, other animals came from their dens in the wilds to St. Chiron. A fox, a badger, a wolf, and a stag. And they behaved with the greatest meekness in his presence obedient in everything to the holy man's orders, as if they were monks. But one day the fox, who was more cunning and more deceitful than all other animals, 
stole the shoes of the abbot St. Kieran, and abandoning his vow, carried them off to his old den in the waste, intending to chew them there. Discovering this, the saintly Father Kiran sent another monk or disciple, namely the badger, to bring his brother back to his obedience. The badger, being knowledgeable about woods, at once set out on obedience to his elder, making his way directly to the den of Brother Fox, Fratris Vulpis. There, finding him just about to eat his master's shoes, the badger bit the ears and tail of the fox and cropped his fur and compelled him to return with him to the monastery, there to do penance for his theft. Yielding to force, the fox came back with the badger to his own cell at the ninth hour, carrying the shoes still uneaten, and went to St. Curon. The holy man said to the fox, Brother, why have you done this evil deed, which no monk ought to do? Behold, our water is sweet and common to all, and food here is for us all alike to share. And if you should have a longing to eat flesh, as is your nature, the omnipotent God would make it for you from the bark of these trees, if we prayed. Then the fox, pleading to be forgiven, undertook to do penance by fasting, and would not eat until the holy man commanded him. And from that time on, he lived as devout and companionable as all the other animals. This story, though vivid and compelling, is of course entirely fanciful, uh, legend, not history. Nevertheless, the vision which it expresses of manifest ease and harmony between Chiron and the world of nature brings at once to mind the figure of Francis of Assisi. What's more, it's even possible that this humble Irish legend marks the first time in the history of Christian literature, prior to the time of St. Francis, the first time that a wild creature, a fox in this case, is openly and reverently addressed by a human being as brother. I hate to say it, but the Irish got there first. <laughs> Readers and scholars over the years have often been struck by the similarities existing between the spirit of Francis and that of the early Irish monks. Francis, like them, we read, was fond of retiring from time to time into solitude, underneath a cliff or in the heart of a wood. And like them, he had a great love of nature and a love also for poetry and music. The Irish, writes Anselmo Tomasini, the Irish made poetry and music almost an integral part of religion, and almost all the great Irish saints have left us hymns or poems. Clearly struck by many of these same links and similarities, the celebrated English scholar Robin Flower remarks, I think it may be claimed that the Irish were naturally Franciscan, Franciscan before St. Francis. For when we read the records of the early Irish church, the legends, the poems, the rules, we cannot escape the feeling that we are here in the presence of a rehearsal of the Franciscan drama, centuries before it was first staged at Assisi. For where they are most characteristic and least dulled by later unimaginative repetition, these records have that very air of morning freshness which surrounds the early Franciscan tradition. Concerning St. Francis himself, one of his contemporaries, the Franciscan friar, Thomas of Celano, writes, Who could ever express the deep affection he bore for all things that belong to God? Or who would be able to tell of the sweet tenderness he enjoyed while contemplating in creatures the wisdom power, 
and goodness of the Creator. From this reflection, he often overflowed with amazing, unspeakable joy as he looked at the sun, gazed at the moon, or observed the stars in the sky. St. Francis never stopped glorifying, praising, and blessing the Creator and Ruler of all things in all the elements and creatures. But the birds of heaven, the animals wild and tame, the stars, the winds, the plants, the living springs, were not addressed by Francis simply as creatures of the one God. They were addressed by him as nothing less than brothers and sisters. Francis did not have the least hesitation, therefore, in addressing doves, crows, and jackdaws as my brother birds, and a tiny chirping cricket as my sister, and the great element of fire as my brother fire. This way of viewing the natural world has over the succeeding centuries become so familiar it is by now almost a commonplace in art and literature. At the time of St. Francis, however, it was a vision startlingly new. The most beloved, most celebrated work of St. Francis is the Canticle of the Creatures. Probably no work of literature concerned with nature, certainly no poem, is more famous within the Christian tradition. The work divides into three separate parts corresponding to the three stages in which it was composed. The first part begins with the poet lifting up in joyous song to God the praise of all creation, sun, moon, stars, and the four elements, earth, air, water, and fire. Part two, in contrast, is concerned with forgiveness and reconciliation. It was occasioned by a quarrel in Assisi, which had broken out between civil and religious authorities. Francis, in an attempt to restore peace between the warring sides, added two verses to the canticle, praising those who, out of love for God, bear with tribulation and suffering, and who learn to forgive their enemies. The third part, in which we find the stunning reference to sister death, was composed by Francis when he himself was dying. But enough commentary for the moment. It's time to read in its entirety, albeit in modest English translation, the little poor man's song, Canticle of the Creature. Most high, all-powerful, good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory, the honor, and all blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong, and no human being is worthy to speak your name. Be praised, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Son, who is the day, and through whom you give us light, and he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor and bears a likeness of you, Most High. Be praised, my Lord, for Sister Moon and the stars. In heaven you have formed them bright and precious and beautiful. Be praised, my Lord, for Brother Wind and for the air, cloudy and serene, and for all weather, through which you give sustenance to your creatures. Be praised, my Lord, for Sister Water, who is most useful and humble and precious and chaste. Be praised, my Lord, for Brother Fire, through whom you illumine the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong.
We praise my Lord for our sister, Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us and produces diverse fruits with colored flowers and herbs. We praise my Lord for those who forgive out of love for you and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are they who endure in peace, for by you, Most High, they shall be crowned. We praise my Lord for our sister, bodily death, from whom no living man can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Blessed are those whom death will find in your most holy will, for the second death shall do them no harm. Praise and bless my Lord, and give him thanks, and serve him with great humility. As soon as Francis had finished work on the canticle, he found himself experiencing great sweetness and consolation, and at once wanted others who were low in spirit like himself to experience something of the same blessing. Francis entertained the idea, the hope, that if those in distress could hear the canticle sung by a group of his friars, their hearts would be lifted up to spiritual joy. For Francis, few things were more important in following the path of Christ than spiritual joy, or what he would sometimes call holy cheerfulness. In this, of course, he rather um, was one, of course, with the Dominican tradition, if I may say, um, the joy of the early friars, and the, the teaching of Thomas Aquinas. In the Summa, I discovered for myself, at one point in the Summa, Aquinas says, if a person is incapable of saying something funny, that person is morally unsound. So there. <laughs> According to Celano, Francis used to say, when the spirit is teary-eyed, feeling abandoned and sad, it will easily be swallowed up in sorrow, or else be carried away toward empty enjoyment. For Francis, especially at times of trial, music was one of the great ways of keeping the heart joyful and of keeping fresh within oneself and in others what he called the anointing of the spirit and the oil of gladness. This helps explain why the great hymn of joy, which constitutes the first part of the canticle, although offered first and last as praise and worship of God, is offered also by St. Francis as consolation, as healing balm for those who find themselves in any kind of sorrow or affliction. The new canticle of Francis of Assisi, we can say, invites us all to live in the radiance of a world still coming into being. Invites us, in other words, to understand our destiny in the created world as a very simple one, that of walking in paradise. In the opinion of the contemporary Franciscan friar Murray Bodot, St. Francis lived out of an essential vision of paradise, a vision of what is God's original design for creation and what will be again when creator and creation are reconciled. Francis dared to live as if paradise was already beginning. Uh, this, Bodo concludes, is what Celano meant when he said that Francis had already escaped into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That escape into freedom 
also characterised the lives of the hermit poets of Ireland, centuries earlier. Both in their lives and in their writings, they, like Francis, dared to look at the world afresh, encouraging not only their own contemporaries, but all those who came after them to live and to act with something of the same courage, the same freedom. Much of what has been said concerning early monastic poetry in Ireland can also be said here of the visionary work of St. Francis. For with the Cantigal in particular, with the vision it provides, we come as near as it is possible to come, at least within the realm of literature, to the innocent eye and tongue of Adam, as he named the creatures. Of all the works composed by the early hermit poets in Ireland, the most impressive, I would say, are the nature lyrics composed in the 9th and 10th centuries. The first lyric which I'd like to draw your attention is voiced for Marban, a poet of the 7th century. It's a truly radiant work, and in it we hear the monk describe in detail his beloved hermitage, his demonstrably poor yet happy dwelling place at the heart of nature. The lyric itself, it is believed, was composed in the 10th century. Here it is translated by Frank O'Connor. A hiding tuft, a green-backed yew tree, is my roof, while nearby a great oak keeps me tempest-proof. Pigs and goats, the friendliest neighbours, nestle near. Wild swine come, or broods of badgers, grazing deer. All the gentry of the country come to call, and the foxes come behind them, best of all. All that one could ask for comfort round me grows. There are hips and haws and strawberries, nuts and sloes. And when summer spreads its mantle, what a sight! Majorum and leeks and pignuts, juicy, bright. Dainty red breasts briskly forage every bush. Round and round my hut there flutter, swallow, thrush. Bees and beetles, music makers, croon and strum. Geese pass over, duck in autumn, dark streams hum. These stanzas represent one side of a conversation or debate which it was believed took place between King Gera of Connacht and Marban, his half-brother. Marban had chosen to renounce the life of a prince at court and live as a humble solitary. The king, astonished by this decision, asks his brother why, instead of sleeping in his own bed, he prefers sleeping out in the wilderness on a pitch-pine floor. Marban's... Um, reply, his stout defense of his contemplative vocation, takes the form of a bright series of stanzas, some of which are those already quoted. Although Marban does appear, it's true, to be bereft of all ordinary comforts, he declares that he doesn't feel any less rich than his brother the king. He writes, there's never a time, by grace of Christ, when I'm poorer than you. And he continues, Though you delight in your private pleasures, all wealth exceeding, 
I render thanks for what is given by Christ in his goodness. Not one hour's quarrel or noise or clamor the like of yours. I thank the Prince who grants all good to me in my hut. So impressed is the king by these words, he declares at once that he would willingly give up his entire kingdom, indeed surrender all claims to wealth and power, if only with his brother Marban he could live in joyous solitude, the hermit vocation. Of course, this entire dialogue was almost certainly written by a hermit poet, so he was biased. A comparable lyric, again on the hermit theme, has survived from the ninth century. This time, however, the author, Mankin of Liath, is not writing as an established solitary, an ascetic monk living far from society in a remote hermitage, but rather writing as someone aspiring to be a hermit, a man, a poet, of manifest literary talent, longing for the life of solitude. Here once again the vision of nature is of a world entirely beautiful, entirely benign. Not only does the poet speak with manifest warmth and reverence, of the great world of nature surrounding his longed-for hermitage, he imagines nature in the form of a clear pool, possessing under divine inspiration the power to heal and cleanse his soul. He writes, I wish, O son of the living God, O ancient eternal king, for a hidden little hut in the wilderness that it may be my dwelling. An all-gray, lithe little lark to be by its side, a clear pool to wash away my sins through the grace of the Holy Spirit. Quite near, a beautiful wood around it on every side to nurse many voiced birds, hiding it with its shelter. A southern aspect for warmth, a little brook across its floor, a choice land with many gracious gifts such as be good for every plant. This is the husbandry I would take, I would choose, and will not hide it. Fragrant leek, hens, salmon, trout, bees. Raymond and food enough for me from the king of fair fame. And I, to be sitting for a while, praying to God in every place. Alongside the manifest affection for God and nature, a kind of primitive radiance pervades these very early Christian poems, a boldness of perception that almost startles. No reader, I imagine, coming upon them for the first time could fail to be impressed by how memorably, in poem after poem, the tiniest details of place and weather are described. The ice-cold hermitage invaded by spring, the new winds, the stark beauty of ocean rock and remote headland, woodland. Kuno Meyer, in one of his many reflections on the distinctive character of early Irish verse, remarks, These poems occupy a unique position in the literature of the world. To seek out and watch and love nature in its tiniest phenomena as in its grandest was given to no people so early and so fully as to the Celt. But what was it that made possible this achievement? What explains the compelling directness and force of these airy lyrics. In the attempt to answer this question, reference has often been made to the likely survival of a robust pagan or pre-Christian spirit. That, I have no doubt, is a telling part of the explanation. 
but of at least equal importance and significance is the direct influence on these early monastic poems of the decidedly new and fresh vision and understanding of creation which came with Christianity. To this vision, to this understanding, the lives of the monks and hermits had given bold and vivid expression for three or four centuries. Convinced that by the simple practice of daily work and prayer, they could in a sense begin to rediscover the original garden of Adam and Eve, the hermits in particular found themselves looking with sheer delight and wonder at the natural world around them, looking at everything as if for the first time. What they saw, like a revelation to their senses, they found good. Accordingly, each of them would no doubt have recognized as their own the joyous vision of the natural world as we find it expressed, for example, by St. Augustine of Hippo. Writing in the fourth century, the great poet, theologian, remarked, In all the things in creation, I find that the sky is good, the sun is good, the moon is good, the stars are good, that the earth is good, and that whatever germinates and roots itself in the earth is good, that whatever walks and moves is good, that whatever flies in the air and swims in the water is good. I say, too, that man is good, for a good man, out of the treasure of his heart, brings forth good. Augustine's vision of nature, like that of the early monks, is grounded in an understanding of God as the author of all that is good, all that is beautiful. Augustine writes in the same commentary on Psalm 134, God made all things very good. Not only good, but very good. He made the sky and earth and all things which are in them good, and he made them very good. Birds and badgers, foxes and deers, uh, deer, wolves and horses, animals of all kinds crowd the lines of these monastic poems. But absent, it would seem, are references to what one imagines were the monks or the hermits most familiar and most favored domestic animals, those uniquely loyal and devoted ambassadors of nature, dogs and cats. Uh, you'll find them, of course, represented in the great uh, illumined manuscripts, like the Book of Kells, but they're strangely absent from the poems. One splendid lyric, however, has come down to us in a medieval manuscript which happily names and celebrates the bond existing between a particular Irish monk of the ninth century and his white cat, Panger Bon. So truly charming and so unusually intimate is the relationship between man and cat, this ancient poem is unquestionably a candidate for inclusion in what might be called the poetry of Eden. That said, however, the mouse in the poem, living under imminent threat of being devoured by the great Panger, has absolutely no illusion that this particular monastic cell is paradise restored. <laughs> Pangerbon was composed in modern-day in Corinthia, that's modern-day Austria, written down in Old Irish on one page of a four-page manuscript containing, apart from the actual lyric, study notes on the Greek language. The manuscript of the poem is now preserved in the Reckonai Primer at St. Paul's, Paul's Abbey 
in Laventhal, Austria. Here is the poem in English translation by Robin Flower. I and Panger bond my cat. It's a like task we are at. Hunting mice is his delight. Hunting words I sit all night. Better far than praise of men, it is to sit with book and pen. Panger bears me no ill will, he too plies his simple skill. It's a merry thing to see at our tasks, how glad are we, when at home we sit and find entertainment to our mind. Oftentimes a mouse will stray in the hero Panger's way. Oftentimes my keen thought set takes a meaning in its net. Against the wall he sets his eye, full and fierce and sharp and sly. Against the wall of knowledge I, all my little wisdom, try. When a mouse starts from its den, oh, how glad is Panger then! Oh, what gladness do I prove when I solve the doubts I love? So in peace our tasks we ply, Pangerbon, my cat, and I. In our arts we find our bliss. I have mine, and he has his. Practice every day has made Panger perfect in his trade. I get wisdom day and night, turning darkness into light. time left to us, I'd like to draw attention to one of the finest literary achievements of medieval Ireland. It's entitled The Frenzy of Sweeney. The work has been translated by Seamus Heaney and given in his translation a new title, Sweeney Astray. Sweeney's tragic story begins when cursed by an angry cleric called Ronan, he is condemned to fly around Ireland as an outcast in the shape of a bird exposed to snow and rain and to every cold gust of wind. He becomes the bird man, quote, a shape that flutters from the ivy to shiver under a wintry sky, to go drenched in teams of rain and crouch under thunderstorms. A haunted and hunted outsider, an excommunicate, Sweeney is at the same time a visionary poet, a representative figure of the artist, displaced, guilty, assuaging himself by his utterance. My life is steady lamentation that the roof over my head has gone, that I go in rags, starved and mad, brought to this by the power of God. At one point, with terrible poignancy, he declares, I have endured purgatories since the feathers grew on me. My cut feet my drained face winnowed by a sheer wind, and miserable in my mind, unsettled, panicky, astray, I course over the whole country. Still without bed or board, crouching to graze on cress, drinking cold water from rivers, never to hear a human voice, to sleep naked every night up there in the highest thickets, to have lost my proper shape and looks, a mad scuttler on mountain peaks, a derelict doomed to loneliness.
Poets, as you know, are often accused of speaking about nature in a sentimental way, but there is nothing whatever sentimental about Sweeney's bright and sharp lyrics. The voice we hear in the frenzy has almost no parallels in Western literature. It is the voice of a man condemned and yet somehow blessed to live out in the open, a poet, a singer, compelled to explore states of thought and feeling beyond the ordinary spectrum. Mad Sweeney's is a language, a music, with no protective cover, a poetry in Heaney's phrase piercingly exposed to the beauties and severities of the natural world. Reading the frenzy of Sweeney, our attention has so far been focused on the anguish experienced by the mad naked birdman. But that very nakedness of his, that unprotected exposure to the natural world, resulted at times in moments of contemplative stillness and sheer joy. What we find, therefore, in the frenzy are not only lyrics of bitter and unhappy lament, but also on occasion poems of bright observation, lyrics of manifest delight. We read, The alder is my darling, all thornless in the gap, some milk of human kindness coursing in its sap. The black thorn is a jaggy creel, stippled with dark sloes, green watercress in thatch on wells, where the drinking blackbird goes. Sweetest of the leafy stalks, the vetches strew the pathway, the oyster grass is my delight, and the wild strawberry. These lines, and others like them, contain a beginning sense of gratitude and wonder a revelation of piercing beauty, a manifest joy in the natural world. Sweeney now begins to appreciate in a new way his life as a solitary and the closeness he enjoys with nature. That life is quite unimaginably hard, needless to say, but quite often it has its own magic. We read, A starry frost will come dropping on pools, and I'll be astray here, on unsheltered heights, herons calling in cold Glenelli, flocks of birds quickly coming and going. The longer Sweeney stays away from human company, the more he is persuaded that he actually prefers the sounds he hears all around him in the wild, prefers it to the noise and murmur of human conversation, boldly declaring, I prefer the elusive rhapsody of blackbirds to the garrulous blather of men and women. Earlier in the work, Sweeney had greatly lamented the loss of human companionship. No sweet talk with women, he had declared, and no human company. What's worse, he had begun to be haunted by the thought that his wife, Eoran, had by this stage presumably taken to her bed a new lover. That explains why, when at one remarkable point in the story, the tormented Sweeney encounters his wife once again, and they have a brief conversation, he confesses openly that deprived of her company, he can find no rest. What's more, his heart and mind are now obsessed by thoughts and feelings of jealousy and betrayal. He exclaims, Restless as wing beats of memory, I hover above you and your bed, still warm from your lover. Remember when you played the promise game with me? Sun and moon would have died if ever you lost your Sweeney.
But you have broken trust, unmade it like a bed, not mine in the dawn frost, but yours that he invaded. Astonishingly, as already mentioned, Sweeney reached a point in his journey when his life out in the wild, his life with nature, held more attraction for him than the allure of a beautiful woman or the ordinary distractions of carousing and conversation or the strictures and enchantments of religion. And so we find him declaring, There was a time when I preferred the turtle dove's soft jubilation as it flitted round a pool to the murmur of conversation. There was a time when I preferred the blackbird singing on the hill and the stag loud against the storm to the clinking tongue of this bell. There was a time when I preferred the mountain grouse crying at dawn to the voice and closeness of a beautiful woman. There was a time when I preferred wolf packs yelping and howling to the sheepish voice of a cleric bleating out plain song. Sweeney then addresses in his imagination two groups of people from two different worlds, the men carousing at their rich banquets and the scholar clerics murmuring and chanting in their cloisters. Both have their undoubted joys, but Sweeney, out in the wild, has discovered a life stripped of all distraction, a life of unexpected joy and great fulfillment. He declares, You are welcome to pledge healths and carouse in your drinking dens. I will dip and steal water from a well with my open pan. You are welcome to that cloistered hush of your students' conversation. I will study the pure chant of hounds baying in Glen Balkan. You are welcome to your salt meat and fresh meat in drinking houses. I will live content elsewhere on tufts of green water uh, cress. Sweeney has dearly become a strong advocate for the vegetarian lifestyle. <laughs> Again, the Irish ahead of the posse, I'm afraid. Uh, towards the end of the story, Sweeney finds himself welcomed and befriended by a compassionate monk called Muling. Muling encourages Sweeney to return often to the monastery, and he takes care as abbot to see that Sweeney is properly fed. At one point, speaking to the outcast, hungry birdman, Muling says, Come here and share whatever morsels you would like. To this, Sweeney replies, There are worse things, priest, than hunger. Imagine living without a cloak. Stunned by these words, Muling exclaims, Then you are welcome to my smock and welcome to take my cow. Official religion at the beginning of Sweeney's story had been poorly represented by Ronan the priest. But here at the end, Sweeney finds in Moling a man, a priest, wonderfully kind. In the eyes of Moling, it should be said, Sweeney is no mere object of charity. From the beginning, he recognizes in the crazed visionary something which commands respect. Sweeney, for his part, is aware that in meeting Moling, he is encountering a man who has knowledge of the gospel living knowledge, and he is happy to acknowledge that authority. If you are Moling, he declares, you are gifted with the word. At the same time, Sweeney is no less aware that as a poet, he is in possession of another kind of knowledge, and one which has its own importance. Without the least hesitation, therefore, with a poet's natural pride, he declares, the Lord makes me his oracle from sunrise till sun's going down. To these words, Maling replies with an affirming statement, happy and willing to acknowledge the poet's special authority. 
Then speak to us of hidden things. Give us tidings of the Lord, he says. It's no surprise, therefore, when the birdman dies suddenly to hear the following warm words of acknowledgement spoken by Moling after the sudden death. Standing beside his grave, Moling declares, The man who is buried here is cherished indeed. How happy we were when we walked and talked along this path, and how I love to watch him yonder at the well. It is called the madman's well, because he would often eat its watercress and drink its water, and so it is named after him, and every other place he used to haunt will be cherished too. Here there is no enmity, but rather a revelation of deep and lasting friendship something which in the final lyric, voiced for Moling, becomes even more manifest. Allow me now to bring this talk to an end of the poetry of the early Irish monks by reading the unforgettable tribute delivered at the grave of the birdman by his great friend, the priest and monk Moling. I am standing beside Sweeney's tomb, remembering him, Wherever he migrated in flight from home will always be dear to me. Because Sweeney loved Len Balkan, I learned to love it too. He'll miss the fresh streams tumbling down, the green beds of watercress. He would drink his sup of water from the well yonder we have called the madman's well. Now his name keeps brimming in its sandy cove. I waited long, but knew he'd come. I welcomed, sped him as a guest. With holy viaticum, I limed him for the Holy Ghost. Because Sweeney was a pilgrim to the stoop of every well and every green-filled, crest-topped stream, there are waters his memorial. Now, if it be the will of God, rise, Sweeney, take this guiding hand that has to lay you in the sod and draw the dark blinds of the ground. I ask a blessing by Sweeney's grave. His memory flutters in my breast. His soul roosts in the tree of love. His body sinks in its clay nest. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Father Paul. We have a few uh, minutes uh, for some questions, uh, so uh, I will uh, facilitate. If you have a question, just raise your hand and I can come. And if you have a question, you can just speak directly into uh, the microphone. Do we have any questions? Yeah. Go ahead and stand up. Thank you so much, Father. Um, I have heard that the Greek word for truth is aletheia, and that, that it means unforgetting. Yes. And I was very struck with um, the idea of the Irish monks uh, remembering through the incarnation of Christ yes. out of a pagan culture, um, Eden, yes. and um, 
that they saw uh, creation and man as redeemed and beautiful. And uh, I was just very struck by that. Yes, no, thank you. Yes, it is very striking. Um, I, I mean, in, in, in our Christian Catholic lives, the role of memory, you know, and in the Mass itself, so central, you know. Remember, Lord, those who have died. You remember the living, you know what I mean? And, and then at the very heart of the Mass, the Lord says to us, remember me, you know what I mean? Do this in memory of me, you know, the humility of God asking us to remember him, you know. And I think the paradise element, of course, the Irish were directly influenced by the desert monks of Egypt. That was the spirituality which most impacted on the Irish. And those early monks in Egypt and the very early fathers of the church were fascinated by the idea that Christ had come like a new Adam to restore, you know, and to, to show us through the moral life of goodness and truth and beauty, you know, that we could begin to live the paradise life, you know. And the most startling representative of that confidence is Francis of Assisi, you know. He, he lived like as if he was in heaven already, you know. It was, he, was, he was almost crazy. He'd be locked up nowadays, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a marvelous witness. You know, the Dominicans, we call him our seraphic father. Uh, he's, uh, he's loved by us. But thank you, yes. Thank you, Father. My name is Francis. I'm five-eighths Irish, so I'm allowed to be here tonight. <laughs> I couldn't help but think of King David the whole time you were reciting these beautiful nature-bound hmm. poems. So how do you relate to King David and his beautiful psalms, which to me are so incredibly yes. poetic? Yes. Um, what, how do you relate him? Would you consider him a poet, a psalmist? Oh, my word. Psalm, yes. Okay, I <laughs> would, but I yes, just wanted yeah. you as an expert no, to tremendous. speak to that. Thank you. I mean, and one of the things about David and the things about the saints, you see, it's, it's, it's their holiness is the holiness of God shining through human weakness and transforming weakness, you know. The saints are not Stoics who create all this by themselves, you know. And I think that is um, absolutely absolutely central in this regard. And also the thing is, David, as presented in the scripture, he lived a wild life, you know, he was voluptuary, you know, he was a murderer. And then he changed, you see. And that gives us enormous hope in God, you know, that if the great psalmist, David, you know, can have been such a great sinner. Aquinas says a beautiful thing when he's introducing his commentary on St. Paul's epistles. He says, the two most quoted texts in the, in the Mass are one from the Old Testament, the Psalms, and the other from the New Testament, St. Paul's epistles. And the reason, he says, is because both of these were great sinners who converted, and that gives hope to us poor believers, you know what I mean? It's a wonderful statement from Aquinas uh, about that. So, I mean, but the, the, the Psalms are extraordinary, and then right all the centuries, over the centuries, you know, uh, you... The, the, the monks and the Dominicans and Franciscans, like we chant the Psalms and they carry like the thought that Jesus himself he recited these Psalms, you know, and found himself, of course, as we find him present because it's a great foretelling. So there's like a double level all the time in the Psalms and they point beyond themselves in the most remarkable way, you know. And they teach us really, especially what I love about the Psalms is that they articulate the craziness of the human condition, you know, the wild feelings of disappointment, bitterness, anger, you know, enchantment, 
blessing, like the full range is there. And that again, <clears throat> it initiates us into a humanity and into uh, a Christian identity, um, like almost nothing else, you know. It's, uh, yeah, thank you. And if you have a question, go ahead and you can uh, let me know even before. The other one is over. Since I didn't see much other hands or anything, maybe I'll ask a bit of a compound question that's related. Okay. We have a lot of experiences that contribute to our ability to do good work in general, and then also a lot that contributes to our ability to write poetry or do other creative acts. I'd be curious to hear what's contributed most to you. And beyond that, in general, how do you know when to when to continue refining and developing what you're writing versus when to actually publish? Uh -huh. well, With two, all these things that contribute to it. Two great questions. You know, what has impacted on me personally? You know, I, I would say first of all, my my parents. You know, like the witness of my parents. Like they have their limitations, like every human being. You know, but I wear actually apart from the the, the beads that I wear as a Dominican, but I wear around my neck. It's my father's actually rosary beads. My father, who was very ill all my life practically and died when I was 14, very good man. And my mother had her own rosary beads, but when she was dying, she wanted to hold my father's beads. And so after her death, I was able to have them. And about two years ago, I suddenly decided to wear, you know. So that reminds me of the enormous gift, you know, that they were, they were good people, but they were believers, you know. And we would say the rosary as a family fairly regularly and all of that. We were eight children, so that was a marvelous witness. Um, and I think I was fortunate in many ways, you know, uh, uh, over the years. And the order, the gift of the vocation, you know, which is just handed to me, it was an American, actually, a Trappist monk. I had no intent, I never met religious, and I met this monk in France. And out of the blue, he said to me, he was a lay brother, Trappist, you're going to be a Dominican, it's so obvious. And I said, but they're nuns. He said, no, there's priests as well. <laughs> and uh, that put it into my head. And from that, I... When I went home, I was fascinated by monks, and they began reading, and I worked out on paper the Dominicans would be best. And, oh my goodness, what a gift the order has been to me. I mean, you know, I'm able to write books and things like that, but really the order has given me everything I can't imagine. And the people, the friars I met, I mean, in my, in my novitiate house, when I look back, it was as good a Dominican house since the time of St. Dominic, you know. They were unpretentious, humble men, witty, humorous preachers, concerned close to the people, had marvelous times. And there was one man who wasn't my novice master, a great novice master, but there was a, an older man in the community, Father Cahill. Oh, he was so humorous and so profound. He'd read everything, you know, and close to the poor. All of these things were a tremendous witness to me. And he loved the poets, you know. And he also, he was spotted all the false isms, like Jansenism or Neo-Pelagianism, and he would blow them out of the water. You know, I was from the north of Ireland intending to be holy by Tuesday. So he had, kind of had, to, <laughs> he had, to, had to slow me because that doesn't work, you know, self-made holiness. It doesn't work, you know. So he said to me one day, he was a very converted, very holy, ascetic man, you know. But he said to me, Brother Paul, always resist conversion, he said. It's invariably short-lived and it's so painful for everybody else while it lasts. <laughs> of course, he didn't really mean that, but he did mean... Don't go out on your own, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, won't, that won't work. So, so I was blessed with these people and with friends and so on. But the order, really. And then being gradually initiated into the vision that comes 
through a tr tradition that you absorb it like you're just in breathing something much more than yourself, you know, and to be able to pass on to others. I mean, it's so sane and so balanced and so visionary uh, and the great saints of the order. I, I, had, I had very little gift for, you know, sustained speculative thinking, actually, and in that sense, I'm a very poor Dominican, but I loved saints, you know. I loved reading about them, and the saints, the, the writings, they're so concrete, you know, and they, like Catherine of Siena, the story, her writings, amazing. Um, so that, that has been thing. But the second question, sorry, you asked about how, how long can you refine, if you're working on a poem, you know, but personally, I, I, I find great, for me, it's a great effort, you know. I, I, it, occasionally, you'll get inspiration, get something like straight down, you know. But even then, in fact, you, I find you have to return again and again to it, you know what I mean? And sometimes you must be careful not to let the mind get too tense, you know, so that because it's always working between the conscious and the unconscious mind. You have to kind of allow yourself to flop back. That's why great writers, you know, are not like professors in universities. I know professors in universities who could talk about every detail of a poem by Keats, by describe it and everything, but they're incapable of writing even a single line of poetry, you know what I mean? Because to be a poet, you have to be a child. To be an artist, you have to be close to the, the earnest, the, the living springs of your innocence and so on. And so Dante and these people had an enormous capacity to connect with that childhood, uh, innocent approach to life. You can't be too clever. If you're too clever, you'll never write, paint a work of art. Or so there is that, to allow yourself to be stunned like a child by, by reality. However wounding, it, sometimes a lot of reality is very painful. It's not all poetry and, uh, and the imagination uh, in a pleasant way. But um, I think that's, um, I think the, the to, st and to stay with the poem, don't abort it, you know, to stay with it and return to it and listen for the false notes. I had a friend, it's great to have a friend who can read. Oh, I had such a Dominican friend, deadly friend, you know, because oh, he was genius, you know. And I would bring my work. I thought, I've written this poem. I thought it was great, you know. And I would bring it to him, you know. And he would look at it, you see. And then he would be very silent. He would say, hmm, you know. And already, even before he spoke, I could see, I could see what was wrong with it. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, if you, if, if, you, if you wrote a poem and then you went into a Carthusian monastery for two years in solitude, and then you came back and read it again, you know. You'd, you'd see all the false notes, you'd hear them. When my friend was like that, it was like going to a Carthusian monastery. And, and he said very little. And if he said, I don't think I have a comment, that meant you were Shakespeare. You know, you'd done something really good. <laughs> but he, he, you know, you need somebody to... In, in writing, actually, one of the real springs of creativity is criticism, self-criticism, you know. Not to be too over-impressed by yourself and, and allow... Uh, in any case, you know, none of us are Homer, like, you know, we're all, after Homer, we're all small beer in a way. But, but still, it's a sacred activity. If God gives you a talent, um, and I think uh, the, the, the talent of waiting and not rushing, uh, most people rush and try to get something done too quickly. The, really, the real geniuses are very patient people and let the, the muse or the Lord uh, hit them, you know. But uh, thank you for your a question to your left over here. Um, thank you for your talk today, as well as yesterday. Um, and uh, along with the the beauty being the truth, um, how do you prevent yourself from falling into heresy? With like when you like read 
beautiful poems and stuff like that, um, especially the canticle of Francis, which you shared, um, where he called the son his brother and Mother Nature his sister, um, where you start to um, kind of personify the objects of this world as opposed to, um, you know, how do you prevent yourself from falling into that type of a trap? Yes. Well, I, th I think, I mean, especially a poem like this and you have you know, a sense of the, the reception of it by the church and you know it's orthodox, you know. So although it may sound like a bit pantheistic or a bit strange, but you know that's not what Francis intends just because the way the tradition has received it. So you're humble enough to receive in that sense. But in general, it's a great question because, you know, as, as Catholics, as, as believers, those of us who are believers here, most of us, if not all of us, uh, reading is terribly important that we don't just read about Maria Goretti or read just pious texts. These are very important to read, saints and the lives of saints, but we should read lots of things. Cardinal Newman, now to be a saint, you know, to be, be called a saint, he encouraged us to read all the great literature of the world, which is often pagan and about violence and about God knows what. But we shouldn't restrict ourselves. But how to read in a way, you know, that doesn't ultimately distract you, it's a great question. There's a letter T.S. Eliot wrote to Stephen Spender, the poet. Spender had written a review of Henry James, and Eliot could tell that he never really read it, surrendered to it, you know what I mean? He said, if you just come to a text with your five ideas, your five prejudices, if you like, then you don't really let this text hit you. If you're going to give time, let it take you over while, the, while you're reading, if you know what I mean, even though there's a danger in that. And you're bewildered because it's a new world. It's like meeting a new person. And Eliot says, even the bewildering minute counts. But let yourself be hit by it. And then he said, you can recover yourself later, but the self-recovered is never the same as the self before it was given. You know, you receive something from everything. And that has always been the Catholic instinct. You know what I mean? Like, we are an openness, and Paul says, to everything that is lovely and beautiful and true and so on. And as the Vatican Council teaches us in other religions and so on, there are elements of truth, sometimes articulated with the majesty. T.S. Eliot says of anything, he said, the heretic is always right about one thing, but he ignores the rest, you know. But about that one thing, the heretic can articulate that one thing better than the orthodox very often, you know. So the orthodox can learn from the expression of that one thing while being alert to the heresy. You know? So, of course, there's a risk and a challenge, but there is this, Catholicism has always that confidence you know, to dare to receive things, like Neoplatonism, a non-Christian form of mysticism, had enormous influence on the Catholic tradition, enormous. The early fathers of the church, the fourth century Greek fathers, Augustine. I remember we had a great bishop in our province who was a mystic, actually, a real saint, um, Bishop Barden, and he, was in, he went to Iran and became the Archbishop of Tehran. And he loved St. Augustine. And one day he gave a talk in Augustine and he put, um, he put the confessions of Augustine on the, on the table, you know. Then he put the, the, the six books of the Aeneas of Plotinus, that's a Neoplatonic mystic. And he said, everything here in the confessions, because Augustine converted to Plotinus at the same time as he converted really to Christ. But he said, everything here... Um, is rooted and grounded in Plotinus. And he banged Plotinus on top of the Confessions. But then he took the Bible, and then he, he lifted the Bible, and on top of it, but always bang under the word. You know what I mean? So always salted with Christ's salt. You know, 
yes, open to what might be true and beautiful in Plotinus, but always judged by the criterion of the final revelation of God in Christ. You know? So there's a risk in Catholicism, you know, that's not there in the, the extreme Puritan tradition, you know, which just keeps itself closed and tight to a few things. We've always had that risk of opening our minds, and especially, I think, in the Dominican tradition, and Thomas Aquinas, it was his genius, actually. Thomas says, if something is true, no matter, he said, don't attend to who is saying a thing. Attend to what is being said, and if it is true, it comes from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so whoever is saying it, if something is true, that is coming from, that was Aquinas, yeah. Thank you. Okay, th thank you so much, uh, Father Paul, for this evening. Instructive in every way. Thank you so much. I'm enormously grateful to the Dominican brothers Wonderful and to the to Archbishop. Yeah. Thank you. Um, once again, uh, thank you to uh, the Archbishop, to our, our young adults for hosting. I wanted to all also acknowledge and give thanks uh, to Maggie Gallagher here. Would you mind standing up? Maggie, thank you. What do you want to say? Do you want to say anything? So, yeah, Maggie is the executive director of the Institute, so just yeah, give her a word. I just, yesterday at the Salesforce Tower, I did handle the Q&A, and I completely forgot to introduce myself. So I just wanted to say thanks to St. Dominic's and the Archbishop, Father Paul. It's been an amazing journey. Uh, I've gotten to hear him three times, and we'll be moving up to Napa later in the week. So, um I'm the executive director, my name is Maggie Gallagher, I'm the executive director of the Benedict XVI Institute for Sacred Music and Divine Worship. Our mission is opening the door of beauty to God through uh, providing practical resources for more beautiful liturgy and energizing a Catholic culture of the arts. So you can find us at benedictinstitute.org. Thank you. If you have questions about the Institute, you can certainly see Maggie a a afterwards, all right? So let's stand up. We'll end with a little prayer and blessing. So we'll pray in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. So loving God, you who created the world and you created it good and very good, we thank you for uh, the blessings that you have given us through creation in our lives. We ask as we go forth this evening, we might truly welcome your presence into our hearts and to our lives that we might radiate your beauty and that way we might share that joy with all whom we meet through christ our lord amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen many blessings good evening everyone